little bit longer because you guys as a congregation responded last week when I asked for some questions for some Q&A sermon series time and I got a stack load that was put on my desk and suddenly I had a lot to think through and a lot to organize this week. So it was a pretty heavy duty week culling through the questions that are on your hearts in terms of God, in terms of Jesus, the nature of Christ, in terms of social issues and Christ and culture, church issues, matters like uh, social drinking and matters like uh, tattoos and piercings and some weird things, you know, that we could talk about, uh, you know, things like how do you evangelize people who are living in immorality or even people who are involved in homosexuality? I mean, there are some pretty heavy-duty questions to talk about and think about, and I want to tackle a lot of them for us. Please don't feel left out if I don't explicitly, directly tackle your question, but I do want to say that I am going to try to cover all of them at least thematically. You can see that the title of our sermon series is Doctrine, Culture, and Life, and that's because I want to hit the teaching of Scripture on the issues that you've presented to me. Then I want to relate it to our culture, the world that we live in, how we think and how we approach things societally. And then I want to bring it to a shoe-leather faith where you live and try to apply it directly to your lives. So I'll bring up a lot of these issues, whether it's, you know, things like how do you deal with depression? How do you deal with singleness, being single? Am I called to be single my whole life or, or perhaps uh, just for a season of time? We'll, we'll address these practical issues throughout this series. And this series, I think, could grow some arms and legs, but it will all depend on your feedback and if this is uh, ministering to you. And I'm not saying by this that I've entertained all your questions. Maybe you've just kind of shown up and you've got some questions still to give. You can email me that, Jeff Cross, or jcrotz at anchoragegrace.org, or you can write it down and give it to me. But listen, you know, if we keep going in this thing and you keep giving me questions, that won't just be my fault, right? It'll be our, our deal, and it'll be all our, our opportunity to sort of plumb the depths of God's Word with some tough questions to fill our hearts up. And let me just give a disclaimer as I begin. I want to say this. Um, this is not um, my time over the next eight weeks or 12 weeks to show you what I know from Scripture and say that I've got the right angle on very tough questions. I'm going to show you from God's Word what I think and what God's Word says. But I want this to be a launching pad for you in your own personal study and development. I want this to be something where I bring a question up that's from your heart to mine where I can pastorally sort of connect with you that way. But then I want this to be a launching pad for you to discover from God's word the truth according to what your study reveals, right? You might add to the discussion from your own study. And my heart is for you to dig deeply into the Bible. That's what this is all about. We have a bookstore that's emerging before our eyes. We have a few shelves that have been built that are in the lobby area. And those shelves are going to be stacked this week with books that have already come that are going to be there for you to peruse. I'm going to wave some books around and say, hey, these books connect with these issues. So we want this to become a Bible-studying congregation. Amen? We're all called to do that, and I'm trying to, you know, sort of salt the mind a little bit, trying to whet your appetite and get you thinking about God's Word and excited about truth and life. Okay, now here's the question of this morning. It's a pretty simple one. Some people boil it down and they call it the problem of evil, right? Pretty easy to answer. 
Not really. We're talking about God and the nature of God. And here's the question. How do you reconcile God's sovereignty with the evil and suffering of this world? I thought I'd, you know, start simple. How do you reconcile God's sovereignty with the evil and suffering of this world? Ultimately, I just have to say up front, the answer to that question is we can't reconcile that issue, ultimately. Because we're human, we're finite, we're not God, and this is a God question and a God answer, ultimately, that we have to leave with him. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, and ultimately, how this fits together, God's complete control over the universe, over the world that he made, over him creating you and creating me, putting us here, and him being in control completely, the beginning to the end of the plan that he put in place, And then him allowing for sin to enter into that and for suffering, sickness, death, and Satan to be involved in his plan somehow. How do we put those two things together? That's really the question. Sort of a broad theme that addresses some of the questions that came onto my desk this week. How do we reconcile God's sovereignty, his complete control of all things, with the fact that he allowed or even has planned for sin, suffering, sickness, and death to be involved in his plan that he's in control of. Well, I ultimately have to say this. I can't tell you from God's word how exactly that fits together. I mean, I want us to stretch up up there into God's word and try to see what God's word says. But, But ultimately... I can't tell you how it fits together, but I can tell you some things from God's word why there is suffering and why there is difficulty in this life. And I can tell you that from God's word. And I can also tell you that we are supposed to believe that God is in control and that he is good, that he is holy, that he is loving, and he is faithful all at the same time. God doesn't in any way sacrifice his holiness, his goodness, His love, his love for you, he doesn't sacrifice any of that, even though God's word says that he has controlled this plan and this world that we live in that has suffering that we experience at the same time. So, we're going to dig into God's word. This is called the problem of evil. It is also called theodicy, just to give you sort of a big blanket term. And I want to just unpackage it this way. First of all, there's the problem of evil, and we've defined that. And secondly, I want to give you some broad and personal examples of the evil and suffering that we experience in this world. There's sort of three categories of evil in the world. There's satanic evil. We know we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, um, but we wrestle against principalities. There's demons. There's the devil out there, and he brings evil into our world, and he is called the god of this world in, in a lowercase g sense. Secondly, there is moral evil. There's stuff that people do to each other. There's evil that's committed against each other. There's evil that you and I do, and there are consequences for sin that we live with, right? But there's, one, there's a third category of evil that I want to talk about this morning, and that is natural evil. And that is because our world that we live in is sin-cursed. Because Adam and Eve fell in the garden and introduced sin into our world, we suffer the consequences of natural evil. That's earthquakes, 
tornadoes, tsunamis, that even generally wars that happen where there are constantly going to be wars and dangers in our world that we suffer from. There's HIV that's been introduced into our world, the AIDS epidemic. There's world hunger that is the effect of the fall. It's just generally here that this is a hard place to live. It's a beautiful place to live, but it's a hard place to live, and we suffer. We, we have loved ones who contract cancer all of a sudden, and suddenly where our hearts are aching, and that evil comes from the fall. That's natural evil. A couple examples of that. You remember the tsunamis of 2004 that, that were formed from the earthquakes that were deep embedded in the surface of our earth. 9.0 Richter scale earthquakes that created 100 foot walls of water that wiped out Indonesia, that, that wiped out Sri Lanka, that wiped out the coast of, coastline of India where villages were wiped out, cities were wiped out, babies were ripped from mother's arms. Those are awful things that happened. The earthquake in Port-au-Prince in Haiti that wiped people out, where a quarter million people died, right? Where, where millions were homeless. And then you have uh, Katrina that happened on our Gulf Coast, 2,000 people dead. And then maybe on a smaller scale, but it's still frightening and it's current, and you're reading it in the news, the fires in Colorado, 104 degree heat, thunder, and you know, lightning happening, walls of flame threatening whole suburban areas. You have this sort of Waldo Canyon area that's been burned over. 350 people out of their homes, you know, leaving all their memories and livelihood behind. It's awful. I get those pictures on the iPhone from friends who are there saying, look at this. Pastors that are having to evacuate their churches and homes. I hear of these things. Why is this happening? How can God, who the Bible says is in control, allow for this? Wasn't God's plan originally just to have the Garden of Eden and have it be sinless perfection? Wasn't that paradise gained and then suddenly are we in paradise lost? And was God in control of that? Isn't heaven the goal? Why did God allow for this and how can it be sovereign when there is suffering? Well, whether you know it or not, I want to pose the idea that you have a position on the problem of evil that's operating in your mind in one form or another. And I want to challenge you that there are a lot of world philosophies out there that influence the way we think about God and suffering. And there's some wrong ones I want to bring up. And then I want to bring up the biblical position that I think we can find rest in. Ultimately, it's like, you know, when you think about this issue and you really start to bring it to heart, it's like you're swimming along and you're getting tired as you swim. And you just want a buoy to rest in, right? That's what the Bible gives to us. The Bible, God's word doesn't ultimately answer the, the infinite. He can't, it doesn't unscrew the inscrutable for us, but it gives us a lifeline or a buoy to rest in where we can say we still believe, God, you're in control, you're completely sovereign, and you're completely good at the same time. And I can rest in that truth. That's what God's word shows us. Here's some false ways that people think. These are some positions, and it's on your handout if you have that from the bulletin. First of all, atheism. There are people who just believe God doesn't exist at all. They're, uh, they're against the idea of God. And so when suffering happens or tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, or cancer, this is all some cosmic 
accident, making life meaningless, making the problem just irrelevant. You know, atoms crashed into each other enough, and so an atheistic evolutionist just believes that it all happened by chance over a long period of time. And so it's just meaningless. Secondly, Christian science. Um, they believe evil and suffering and death is just an illusion, so the physical and material really doesn't matter. It's not really happening. What really happens is what's happening in our spirit. Thirdly, you have deism. This is a person who believes that God is sort of impersonal to us. It's like he created everything like a, a big wind-up clock that he invented, he created, he designed, he orchestrated. He wound it up and then sold it on the market to a buyer, and then the buyer takes it away and enjoys the clock, and he's just depersonalized from it. And you say, come on, I don't believe these things. Well, have you ever been tempted to? Something awful happens to your life or you're, you're just kind of struck emotionally by something. You get you start going, God can't be in charge of that, right? He, I mean, he's not directly in charge of that. Maybe in an impersonal way he is. Well, some people, they take on a New Age philosophy. I don't have this listed in your handout, but pantheism. It's like God and nature are one, you know, and you're trying to reconcile mother nature. And you sort of give mother nature its own personality. You say it's mother nature's fault, but not my Bible's, you know, depiction of God, not that God's fault. It's Mother Nature. People do that too. And then there's liberalism. There's sort of a Christian liberalism version of reconciling this where they try to logically figure it out and, and someone will say, look, you know, God's made a truce with creation or God is competing with creation. He's not in charge of it, but he's sort of working alongside it. There are theologians, and I don't mean to, you know, get too out there, but there's a lot of seminaries that are teaching pastors just believe that, you know, God is, he, he knows everything, but he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. That's called openness theology. It's, it's open theism. It's the idea that you believe that God knows the bazillion possibilities that could happen. He knows all of those, but he doesn't direct exactly the outcome of what's going to happen. And then there's Rabbi Kushner, if you heard of him, you know, he wrote the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Well, this guy, as a Jewish rabbi, he lost his son, and to reconcile that tragic experience, he began to devise a theology where God is sort of working alongside nature, but sort of nature is, is sort of blind to morality, and it's just happening, and God knows about it. That's what Rabbi Kushner believes. And so where the insurance policy says, you know, a hurricane or a tornado is an act of God, right? He says, that's blasphemy. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. He says, I can't worship a God like that. I can't worship a God who could have stopped the tragedy and didn't. But I can worship a God who is you know, alongside of a tragedy and couldn't stop it, but can help me after the fact. So that's, and that's a half million copies are sold. I mean, this splashes around in our world's thinking, and we have to reconcile those false systems of thinking with what the truth says. Well, here's one that hits home. What about the legalistic position? Legalism, and th this is where Christians will say, well, I know why bad things happen to you know, down there in Haiti or, or the coastline of Japan where that tsunami hit. Or I know why bad things are happening to the state of Colorado, that pagan state. You know, I, I'm just kidding. But, you know, it's where people say it's because of immorality. 
you know, there are, there are public Christian speakers who have said, look, 9-11 happened because of homosexuality in our nation. Or, or you know, the, uh, the Katrina victims suffered because of the voodoo magic that celebrated down there in New Orleans. Or, or the Haitian people in Haiti suffered, you know, because of their connection to black magic. And, and are we supposed to think that? Are we supposed to grade people on a scale in terms of how sinful they are in terms of what happens to them? Well, that's a temptation, and we're going to address that from God's Word. And the way I'm going to do this is I, I have in my manuscript passages written out for me. And so I, and I'm going to have those passages put up on the screen as we go there. But I'm going to go through a, a series of passages to define how God is sovereign and in control and he's even in control of a plan that allows for and he even directs suffering in the midst of it. And that is so that we can see for ourselves the buoy of rest that we're supposed to cling on to and hold on to as we persevere through this life. And see that God is getting glory through his perfect plan. Now you can follow and I'll direct you in your Bibles as we go. However, I'm going to be moving pretty quickly. This is a case for God's sovereignty and his sovereignty is over good and evil or evil and good. It reminds me of a play that uh, I read about. It was a play written in the 1950s and this play written by Archibald McLeish. It is a parody on the life of Job. And it talks about the Job figure, figure which is named J.B., and the play is called J.B. And J.B. is a banker millionaire who suddenly lost everything. He lost his family, lost all of his money. And then there's a Satan figure, and his name is Nichols. And he's a clown, so he's this sort of scary clown. And ultimately, Nichols says something very profound. If God is God then he is not good. If God is good, then he is not God. Kind of an interesting thought. It's what we wrestle with, right? If God is God then in control of everything, then he can't be good. If God is good, then he surely can't be God. But guess what? The Bible says God is God who is sovereign and he's good at the same time. And I'm going to show you some passages to back this up. First of all, with the example of Joseph. Now, we've talked about Joseph from Genesis and how Joseph was this, you know, the baby of the family before his little brother Benjamin came along. But he's the baby of the family when his older brothers sold him into slavery. They threw him in the pit. They ripped his coat off and, and they had his father presume that Joseph was dead. Joseph went and ultimately, you know, sort of gained favor into Potiphar's house and, house and then was falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife and then was put in prison for it and forgotten about in prison and then ultimately interprets dreams, but he's going through years of imprisonment through this. And then he rises again through the ranks in Egypt to second in command next to Pharaoh. And poetic justice at the end of Genesis, sort of it's on display as he's sitting there in front of all of his brothers who are figuring out before their eyes that Joseph, who they're reporting to, has, who has command over their lives, is the brother that they sold out into slavery. And in this wild moment, Joseph is able to put the pieces together in his head and believe, God, you are completely in control even of the evil that was done 
to me by these brothers. You were in control of that, and you brought about goodness in the midst of it. Watch this. Genesis 45, 8. This is where he's talking to his brothers, explaining all of what happened to him. He says, so it was not you, the brothers, who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then you connect this forward with Genesis 50, verse 20. One of the greatest verses in the Bible on the sovereignty of God is this. As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now listen, you need to be able to be armed with this kind of mindset, I'm telling you. It was sort of with fear and trepidation that I opened up this theme this week because I know that if you're not in trouble, guess what? It's coming. If you're not in trouble today, it's around the corner at some variance or another, we will have heartache in our lives. We will have consequences to our own sin come back to us. We will have issues. We will have heartache. We will be at the bottom of the barrel on the floor looking up saying, God, help me. And we have to reconcile at that point. God, you are in control. I don't know how, but you're in control of this. I don't know how, but you're in control and you're good at the same time. And that's what Joseph did. And that's why he didn't immediately kill his brothers in vengeance. For what they did to him. Isaiah 45, 7. How in control is God of good and evil? I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create, create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now please hear me. There are a lot of tensions in scripture. How can God have anything to do with evil happening? And be completely holy? I don't know. God is thrice holy. Forever in eternity, the angels declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is called light from John in 1 John 5. He is complete in unmixed purity, holy. He is wholly separate from sin's contaminating effects. There is a barrier moat of holiness around him. At the same time, he is completely and utterly and meticulously in control and sovereign of all events that are happening. Even the things that are naturally evil. This is why there's a problem because ultimately we can't recognize in our finitude how these things fit together, but we have to believe both to have the true and living revelation of God and to understand our world around us. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Jeremiah the prophet, he's been prophesying to Israel, calling them to repent. They say no. God sends Babylon. He's standing there in the midst of a flame-torched city and society watching the temple of God burn to the ground. Talk about a ministry that he was called to. Hey, what a mission field. It's all burning to the ground before my eyes in judgment. How does he keep saying Lamentations 3.37? He laments and says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Verse 38, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? That's how he found stability. Job, let's talk about him. We know that his family was ripped from him, killed dead, all his children. His wife rejects the God that he's trusting in front of him. His health is 
is destroyed as he's strewn with, you know, sort of boils and sores, you know, that are all over his body. He's just dying in pain, but living through a living hell. As he's sitting there, he's got his three best friends who come to him and basically take the form of that position of legalism. They say, well, all this bad stuff's happening to you because of your sin. Obviously, you're not coming clean or this stuff wouldn't have happened to you. That's the biblical counseling that's given to Job. So he's rejected, he's being tortured, but he finds hope in God's sovereignty. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You know, ultimately, I, I remember John Piper when the tsunami waves hit those coastlines and people were suddenly, instantly wiped out. Piper said, look, I, I know that Jesus, he could have stood on those waves and stamped them down. He could have done that, but chose not to. So no plan of God can be thwarted. And Job ultimately, at the end of the book of Job, puts his hand over his mouth and recognizes that God is sovereign. He doesn't get to know how it all fits together, but he knows who he's contending with. And in that, he finds hope and peace and rest and deliverance through the difficulty. Ephesians 1.11, we're going to look at this next week, specifically in terms of God's sovereignty and salvation and man's free will. That'll be an easier assignment next week, right? Ugh, what have I gotten myself into? Here we go. Ephesians 1.11, God does everything in, the, in accordance with the counsel of his will. Romans 8.35-39, I'd ask you now to turn in your Bibles to that passage. This is a great passage of hope in Scripture to Christians who were under the gun. They were being martyred for the faith. It's like missionaries who go to sort of an area of danger and Paul, to encourage these Christians, says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, you, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are familiar words. Some of you know these words by heart. But let me just tell you, this is the ultimate passage for you can't have it both ways. You can't believe that God is not in charge of the swords, the tribulation, the distresses, the persecutions, the famine, the nakedness, the slaughtering, the death, the life, the demons. You can't say that God is not in control of that, that God is passive about those things. And at the same time, experience the comforting promise that nothing shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, God is either Lord over all of it, both the, the effects of the fall. He's Lord over the sin occurrences that happen in our lives, the suffering. He's either Lord over that and his promise to not separate himself from us, or he's not Lord over any of it. 
In other words, can we really be confident that God can spare us from eternal damnation if God isn't also in charge of this life and the life to come? It's a package deal. He's sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over all the calamities in your life. He's sovereign over all the difficulties of your life. He's sovereign over the bad things that you did and the consequences you're experiencing. He's sovereign over that. And he's able to keep his promise through it and say nothing will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing will break that bond. Is that a lifeline to you? Is that a buoy that you're able to grab onto? It's hard. This happened to me or I brought this into my life. It's evil. It's difficult. And God, you're right there with me and you were sovereign over the whole plan at the same time. That's the power of Romans chapter 8. If God is for you, who can be against you? Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's the promise of the gospel. That's why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances. Or Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. What's Paul sitting there in? He's in a prison, shackled to a guard. Rats are crawling through his toes and starving to death. And he's like, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You're in control of this situation. And what he wrote during that time, we're reading today. It's affecting the world. Why? Because it was all part of God's plan for him to be in prison and write the prison epistles, which make up a third of our Bibles. It's all part of his plan. We don't always know how it all fits together, and we, we don't ultimately know how it fits together, but we know why from Scripture these things are happening to us. The suffering refines us, it grows us, it causes us to depend on the Lord, and God gets glory by preserving our faith through suffering. These are some of the biblical reasons why, and we have to believe all of it. God's in charge of all of it. Now, I know that there is retribution in the world. There was Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There was the flood. Sin does bring retribution. The retribution principle is biblical. It is scriptural. But we're not supposed to judge when it is at play or at work. We're not. And I would invite you to turn to John chapter 9 just to prove this out. The teachings of Jesus, 9 verse 1. Jesus and his disciples are walking by a blind man who had been blind since birth. And Jesus is asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We're not to judge why that person is blind from birth. We're supposed to understand a reason or how that all fits together, but we're supposed to understand the reason for why he was born blind from birth, at least in this instance, so that God would be glorified to heal this man. Sometimes God heals miraculously and relieves someone from the curse and the effects of the fall, and sometimes he doesn't, but God is glorified through it. We watched a person this last year in our midst die of cancer, my secretary, our beloved Rosemary, and, and she was experiencing the, the gruesome, horrible effects of the fall through that. And never have I seen someone die so well because she died in faith. 
And so even though her, her eyes were dimming and her body was decaying, her vitality was strong. And she was loving the Lord. And she was almost there, one foot in glory in front of us. And so the works of God, the glory of God was on display. And her healing happened after she left this world. But God was glorified through that. So we're not supposed to judge why bad things happen. Or how God can be in control and bad things are happening. But we are supposed to glorify God and see him glorified through things. Luke chapter 13 is the same thing. Jesus teaches on this to his disciples. Where in Luke 13, the beginning of the chapter, he says, Some were present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What people were doing is they were saying, hey, you know, there were these Galileans over there who went in to worship God with their sacrifices. And Cyrus, or at least their version of God, probably Greek gods, but Caesar being jealous, Pilate rather, jumped on that and slaughtered them with their sacrifices. And so they're bringing up to Jesus the idea that man those people really you know they had to pay the piper they they had they had something coming to them because of their pagan idolatry and false worship didn't they and Jesus immediately corrects this and he he doesn't excuse the sin of the Galileans but he lumps everybody else in the same situation with the Galileans he answered them do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Second story, or these, verse 4, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, that hit the headlines. He says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, look, when bad things happen to people, whether it's personal things like cancer or, or sicknesses or suffering or loss of loved ones or big grand scale things like Port-au-Prince, you know, being rocked to the core and people dying catastrophically or tsunamis or whatever or fires. When those things happen, we are not to judge those people, but we are to be warned by the catastrophes that happen, which are the effects of sin. And Jesus puts us all in the same category and says, look, unless you repent and unless you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are under the same threat and the same danger and the same warning that is shown to you by these calamities. You see, every time there's an earthquake, every time there's a tornado, every time something awful happens, it is an effect of the fall of man. It is the effect of sin. And it is a warning shot over the bow for those who survive it to go, you know what? One day the wrath of God is going to bring justice on sinful humanity. And unless I am one of his, I will not escape the wrath of God that looks just like those Colorado fires and worse. That's what we're supposed to do. Matthew chapter 24, 7 and 8. It's where Jesus taught, look, there are wars and rumors of wars. There are earthquakes. There are famines. There are horrible things that happen. And all of those things should serve as a warning shot to show you that tribulation is coming. Judgment is coming. So we don't judge people who are affected by that, but we are warned by the judgment that is to come. 
you know, if we spun all this thing on its head, even the whole question of the problem of evil, we could spin the question around and say, why does God allow any of us to enjoy this life here on earth when we are so sinful? Why does he allow any of us to escape his wrath for a time because God's so holy and we're so sinful? Why did he save me personally and call me his child and promise to me that I won't be separated from his love and I'm secure in heaven? Why would he do that for me? Instead of judging people, we should just turn it on its head and say, praise the Lord that, that these unbelievers are experiencing the common grace and goodness of God. And I pray that while they're enjoying this life, that they would get to know God personally and enjoy him for all of eternity. Those are maybe better questions to ask. It's where we are blown away by the gospel. And we say, like Paul did in Romans 11, how unsearchable and unfathomable are your ways. You are a God who saved me and spares this world for a time, even though bad things happen in the midst of it. Just a different way to look at it. All right, is, here's a question I want to ask. Is, is God's sovereign rule... Just general or is it exhaustive? Is it actually specific to your life? And I want to make the case from Scripture that it is very specific. Even though suffering is happening, even though we are responsible for our sins and we're culpable for that, and, and we are free moral agents in this world, we're not puppets on a string, we're not robots. I mean, the Bible never teaches that. It teaches a, a balance between God's rule and our free will. But I want to show you how God is involved in the details of our lives. Proverbs 21.1, God is moving through the hearts of the king and he guides them like irrigation ditches of water. He's moving their hearts like streams of water. The Proverbs is teaching that even the most lowercase g now, follow me, the most godlike ruler and dictator in our world who at a whim can order people to live and die, even that person at that high level is ruled by God specifically. And so everybody else underneath that level of tyrannical leadership, everybody else's will is ultimately under the sovereign control of God. Well, how do you have that and free will? That's a question we have to ultimately leave with God. But we don't want to deny Scripture. If you look at um, Exodus 4, verse 11, this is an interesting context. Moses, who was encountered by, I think, the Lord Jesus Christ... In, in the land of the Midians, looking at the burning bush, was commanded to go and confront the ruler of the world, Pharaoh, and let God's people go. And, and Moses said, but I stutter, you know, but I, my, I don't speak well, right? I mean, that's kind of what he was saying. Don't put me in front of that kind of situation. And so the Lord answers him in Exodus chapter 4 and says, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In Exodus 34, there's an example of how during the holiday seasons, the religious festivals of the Jewish calendar, three times a year, God would make a promise that the enemies of the land of Israel would, would not covet the land. In other words, 
God would turn the off switch in the hearts of the enemies and say, look, during those seasons when your men go away to worship and your economic system shuts down and you're not harvesting anymore during that time and you're most vulnerable, I'm going to turn the off switch on the hearts of your enemies and they cannot covet your land. Exodus 34, 23 and 24. Isaiah 5, 26 through 28 is a promise that the Assyrians who were going to attack Israel because they were bound up in idolatry, that they were going to not have a waistband that was loosed, a sandal strap was not going to be broken on the enemy's sandals, their arrows were going to be sharp, their bows were going to be bent, their horses' hooves were going to be like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Well, you can say, well, that's just poetic, poetic, you know, literature that's poetic genre and I grant you that but there is the heart behind that is that God is very detailed in what he orders he's sovereign he's sovereign even over the details you say well okay you've shown me that from the old testament this is the new testament well let's talk about the teachings of Christ Matthew chapter 10 28 he says I do not and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell context here Jesus is saying hey don't be afraid I know that if you follow me you're gonna have a target put on your back and people could kill you but don't fear those people that could kill you because I'm in control of that but fear me because I'm in control of heaven and hell and then he gives an example here he says look are not two sparrows sold for a penny or a trifle they're sold for a little penny and not one of them those little penny Christ birds will fall to the ground apart from your father. This morning I looked over the dishes in my sink out the bay window and a magpie bird went up and guess what? God was in control of that moment. Oh, big bird. God's in control of birds hopping, of birds dying that are really just worthless animals. Well, I mean, come on, give me a break. They're beautiful, I understand, you know. But compared to man and woman made in the image of God... God cares about even an animal that's worth a penny and is intricately somehow involved in that dynamic of birds hopping. It gets worse. Look at this. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. There are on average 140,000 hairs on your head. Some have more hair than others. I get that. Okay, I understand. But God's in control of every hair and every follicle that's on your head. That's pretty meticulous sovereignty going on there. That's exhaustive sovereignty. And for us who are able to affirm that scripture is true, we find comfort in that. For some of us, we might be alarmed to believe that God is in control at that level because of the things that have happened to us or things that have been allowed to happen in our lives. You know, maybe abuse or difficulties or struggles or things that have happened. However, ultimately, Jesus calls us to find rest in the fact that he is very specifically in control and very much a part of our day-to-day lives. He is. He's growing us through it. He's causing us to trust him more. He's causing us to, by faith, seek glory in what's happening through dark times. He's causing us to want to long for the outcome of his plan, which is where we are ultimately delivered through Christ into a perfect heaven. God is sovereign, 
And in this context, he's saying, look, don't be afraid of people that could kill you because I'm sovereign over your life. That's what he's saying. James 4, 13 through 16. We're not going to maybe turn there right now, but you remember James is saying, look, don't be so puffed up with pride where you're going, oh, I'm going to go to this town or that and set up a business and it's going to work out for me. But instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Why? Because God's in charge of your business. God's even sovereign over your joblessness. God's in charge of the job you're in that you don't like. God's in charge of all of those details where you work. He is. And for some of us, that's hard to swallow because you don't like your situation. But if you can get beyond it and say, God, what are you doing through my hard situation? Then you can rest. Then there's a buoy to grab onto. God's also in charge of nature. I just want to touch on this for a second. Job 37. Job, again, he's, he's in the throes of difficulty, but his, his vision of nature and his vision of God being in control of nature is a place where he found refuge and comfort. You want to be comforted? Go out and look at God's glory in nature. Don't just view it as nature for nature's sake. See the God behind the nature and you'll find comfort. He says this, very poetically, under the whole heaven, he, God, lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. He said that a lot this winter, right? Fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Talks about leading the beast to their dens, right? And then it says, by the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. When the cook inlet freezes over this winter... It's all just scientific, right? I mean, let's just take kind of a deistic approach and whatever, you know, the laws of nature. It's all just, no, God froze that place. God's in charge of that. And that's the God that we're called to believe in, the one who's sovereign over creation, sovereign over nature, sovereign over good, and sovereign even over the evil that he allows. Now, when evil things happen, let me say this as well. Are we supposed to just sort of stiffen up and harden up and go, well, God's in control, and so when those, you know, villages are wiped out, we're supposed to be just sort of heartless and robotic about that and just move on? No. As Christians, we're supposed to melt and weep with those who weep. We're supposed to be the first to bring relief to hurting victims. We're supposed to care for people who are starving. We're supposed to care for nations that are hungry. We're supposed to care for the abused. We're supposed to be the lifeline. We're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus to our world that suffers. Suffering is an entree for us to give the gospel and to give the physical relief that expresses gospel love. That's why we have Mountain View up north. That's why in North Anchorage. That's why we are thinking about people that have needs. We need to do that. At the same time, we need to rest in the fact that God has a plan and is superintending it. We don't want to become practical atheists just because things are horrible and we can't reconcile it ultimately with the goodness of God. Okay. Amos 3.6, does disaster come to a city unless 
the Lord has done it. I mean, there are just passages that hit very specifically to how God superintends suffering and difficulty. Lastly, I want to just talk about people for a second, and this will be a lead into next week. I'm going to talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation and man's free will. Another very easy topic to, to tackle, right? What have I gotten myself into? All right, anyway, here we go. Um, we'll hit that next week, though. And God is sovereign over people. And I just want to show you this. Proverbs 16:9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his what? Steps. There's a balance here biblically where we are independent, free agents under God's care. And I just want to say that Jesus is the premier sinless example of this where he gave testimony saying in John 7 verse 1, John said, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. See, Jesus knew, look, I'm not going to go in there because they would kill me. But at the same time, he not only made volitional decisions, he also trusted the plan of God. The same chapter, verse 30, is where it says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. God the Father was sovereign over the ministry of Christ, and Jesus, in the midst of trusting and submitting to his sovereign Father, was making perfect, independent decisions of obedience throughout. It's the balance of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Ultimately, there are some things that we just have to trust God on, right? We're like little children, like my youngest child who's laying on the back of the floor in the back of our worship center. You don't have to look back there. But, you know, we tell him, don't run out in the street. Don't run out there. Why? Because there's cars that will run, run over you. He doesn't care. He's like, look, a big street. It's a big playground. I'm free and I'm free. Right? And so he runs out there. And he might say, why can't I go out there? And ultimately, he's not going to understand cars. And so we just say, because I said so. And ultimately, we have to rest as children of God in the fact that God is sovereign and there is suffering and he's in control of the total plan because he said so. Let's pray and invite the Lord's blessing on communion. Father, we thank you for this time.